Today's series is part of uh, round, the series of Rendezvous with the Expert that the Society of Neurosciences in Anesthesia and Critical Care is sponsoring and is accessible at the website. And uh, this series tackles several topics for educational purposes. And today's topic is traumatic brain injury. And our expert today is Dr. Audrey Bendo. Uh, hello, Dr. Bendo. Hello. Um, so Dr. Audrey Bendo is Professor and Executive Vice Chair of Anesthesiology at SUNY Downstate Medical Center. She is also a Distinguished Professor in the SUNY system. Uh, Dr. Bendo has been lecturing and educating in the field of traumatic brain injury for many, many, many years, as far as I can remember. She's an internationally known expert in neuroanesthesiology and lectured on that topic in our national meetings and been educating us anesthesiologists on the topic for many years. So it's, she is the perfect expert for today's topic. Dr. Bendo, so our first question in traumatic brain injury, what, what are the field risk factors that lead to poor outcome, like brain injury cases? Since probably the 1990s, it was pretty clear from research done by the uh, neurosurgeons, Chestnut and Marshall, that hypotension and hypoxemia in the field and uh, was associated with increased mortality. So they've known this for a long time, and they would say that 50% of patients would have experienced some kind of hypotension and hypoxia. So the challenge is developing systems that would get to these patients quickly and then correct any hypotension and hypoxia in the field. Now, as they develop this concept of secondary brain injury occurring after the original insult, and it occurs almost immediately after the original insult, they then began to realize that there were many systemic factors and things, intracranial factors, that were contributing to ischemic brain damage after the injury. So this has been going on. We've known about this probably since the 80s and 90s into the year 2000, and we've been trying to develop systems that would treat these patients more effectively in the field, in the ED, and then when we get them in the operating room. So it's been a challenge to our profession for a very, very long time. Just oddly enough, we haven't really made a dent in this. You know, this has been a very big, big problem, and we all have to be involved in monitoring and making sure that we're not contributing to any hypotension or hypoxia and all the other secondary insults that can occur. Bearing in mind this important background uh, information, what what are the major goals for the anesthetic management of craniotomies for acute traumatic brain injury. So this so then we're continuing this resuscitation. So what needs to happen is the patient is brought from the the accident scene to the ED, hopefully quickly uh diagnosed um in that process and blood pressure and uh ventilation and all these things are being monitored and then the patient comes 
to the operating room. Key thing is how quickly that can occur, because no one has shown that any other thing matters. So how quickly can we get this patient to the operating room to remove the clot that's causing the major injury. So then we can continue the stabilization. So what do we need to do? Well, it's everything we would normally do. We're trying to uh, prevent secondary brain injury. So the goal is to maintain cerebral perfusion, oxygenation, and that's that in itself is a challenge. It's amazing. So how many times does a patient come in, the blood pressure's high, right? It's high because they're probably having a Cushing response. They have some bradycardia. So you know it's a Cushing response. And what happens is that we then either give anesthetics and then they quickly decompress, open the dura, and the blood pressure plummets. And the reason that's occurring is that these patients received mannitol. They probably received mannitol out in the field, they receive mannitol in the ED, and now as soon as they open the dura, the ICP is zero, and they haven't been adequately fluid resuscitated. So that's one challenge. The other thing is to constantly be aware what's going on with that brain. So as soon as they open the brain, you get an idea of where you are in terms of any increased um, swelling or problems with the brain and then how you can manage the patient physiologically. But they always say avoid drugs and techniques that raise ICP. So okay. here we are trying to do a million things all at the same time and continue that initial resuscitation, including airway management. But these patients with severe injury usually come up intubated. But then you need to monitor electrolyte balance and the brain. You have to look at that brain and the then what we should do as we settle down is maintain what I call cerebral homeostasis. And what that is is maintaining oxygen delivery. That gets you into what the best hematocrit should be and normal cardiac output. And then also you have to be looking at serum glucose, electrolytes, temperature, all of these things to make sure that we're not contrib contributing in any way to the secondary brain injury. Said it all in one big round way, but really the urgency is there. I said it quickly and it's it's exactly how you feel when you're in the operating room. You have to do all these things at one time. So there appears to be some controversy around the use of some anesthetic agents in patients with traumatic brain injury and raised intracranial pressure. Can can would you like to comment on the role uh, of etomidate and ketamine in traumatic brain injury, or what What would be the so-called anesthetic of choice or induction agent of choice here? Well, you know, first of all, they're probably already intubated, so someone has has given something in the ED. But oddly enough, I do not use etomidate. And why in these is that? Patients. And in any of the neuro patients. Well, you know, it's been documented that acute uh, traumatic brain injury patients can have lower cortisol levels, and that contributes to a lower blood pressure and higher vasopressor use. So the one agent that probably has been implicated in exacerbating that condition has been atomidate. 
So even though it's a quick fix at the time, you think you're getting some hemodynamic control with the use of Etomidate, if the patient has significant volume loss or blood loss, the Etomidate is not going to help you. So I'm very much against using it because there are long-term effects, and they've actually looked at the use of Etomidate um, and its effect. And biologic adrenal insufficiency from one dose of Etomidate can last up to 48 hours. So what's the benefit of using Etomidate? You can use lower doses of propofol, narcotics, lidocaine is also a very excellent drug to use because it has beneficial effects, and secure that airway. And probably when the patient comes into the operating room, there's no need to give an induction agent because the patient's intubated. How so, about ketamine? Well, that's an interesting drug, too. Now, the, 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 the information on ketamine, um, really the package insert, which I think is kind of um, interesting, still says an increase in CSF pressure has been reported following administration of ketamine used with extreme caution in patients with pre-anesthetic elevated cerebral spinal fluid pressure. And the only controlled, prospective controlled study that was done uh, with ketamine actually showed, recently, showed that um, in patients with controlled ventilation and a combination of sedative agents and ketamine, there was no increase in ICP. Now, the data for using it as an induction agent, using it for maintenance, is very inconclusive. None of the studies have been shown to show, uh, you know, a beneficial effect in terms of ICP one way or the other. But we all know that ketamine may have some neuroprotective mechanisms. It's an NMDA antagonist. It has anti-inflammatory properties. And this new concept of uh, inhibition of spreading depolarization and may also be involved in that and, and uh, sustaining that. So there's a lot of possibility for ketamine. It's not yeah. something I would say no to, but would I use it as my first induction agent in the ED to secure the airway? Probably not. So what is for patients who come and are not intubated, then is it okay to use, is it safe to use succinylcholine to secure the airway in traumatic brain injury patients? In my, in my talk, I always say that we have to look at circulation, airway, breathing, and then ICP. So if your main goal is to secure the airway and to do it quickly, um, and you have any concerns about that airway, you're probably going to use succinylcholine. In the ED, do you need it when the patient gets upstairs into the controlled setting of the operating room and you're securing an airway? Probably not. You could give double dose of, you know, a non-depolarizing agent like rocuronium as your first agent with the oxygenation, decrease the onset, and secure your airway, only if you're sure that everything's going to go easily and well. And, sure. and that'll be effective. But do I worry about the ICP increase from succinylcholine? Probably not. Okay. So 
What do you think for maintenance? Uh, should one use Steva? Is Steva better than inhalation anesthetics? Which would lead to a better outcome, or do we know that? We don't know. We don't know. And usually what people do at that point, let's say we now resuscitated the patient, fluids are good, we have good hemodynamics. People tend to use, um, in the U.S., they tend to use uh, a propofol fentanyl uh, mix with maybe half-max sevoflurane for blood pressure liability and changes. However, if I really had my choice, it would be thiopental. We're not extubating these patients at the end of the surgery. It would be a wonderful drug to use. We don't have it here anymore. So instead, we use Propofol. But again, no. you know, you have to be doing physiologic control. You have to look at your uh, brain, you know, step around to the other side, make sure there's no cerebral swelling, and, and make sure all the things that we need to do to ensure that the operating conditions are good. And, um, and I think that's very important, less so what anesthetic you're going to use. So in regard to intracranial pressure management, how how can we as anesthesia providers help to acutely decrease uh, ICP and what are the various interventions to to treat intracranial hypertension well you're back you're you're in the realm of i haven't talked about the problem with ventilation and hyperventilation um that's another go for it okay yeah. that's another challenge for us one thing to appreciate in the injured brain, and it took me a while to understand this, but the immediate reaction of the brain to injury is hypoperfusion. So if I, you know, have a trauma to, to a brain, it's going to be in a state of shock, which is hyperperfusion, hypoperfusion. And that's something that it took all of us in neuroanesthesia a long, long time to appreciate. So the last thing we wanted to do to that brain in that state of shock was hyperventilate. And up until the 1990s, we were hyperventilating these patients. We would bring them, <clears throat> we would bring them down to 25 millimeters of mercury, leave them there, uh, readjust it, all sorts of stuff. Um, absolutely the worst thing in the world to do to the patient. So then how do you manage intracranial hypertension? What are you going to do? And that's why getting the patient to the OR and removing uh, the clot is so important. But it also means that in the emergent situa situation, you're going to do things like mannitol. Again, um, the only way we can do it hyper is with mannitol. Now, the data isn't there to support it, and we've been using it for over 30 years. Hypertonic saline is another way to um, ac acutely reduce ICP. Ventricular drainage can be done if necessary. But hyperventilation is considered a treatment modality. So if you have obvious brain swelling, Yes, you can try hyperventilation, but all these other things must also be done. Positioning the patient and making sure there's no 
venous drainage problems with the head and the neck is also very important and maintaining the patient in a head-up position. So all these things will be uh, considered if the patient is having problems with cerebral swelling. Okay. Now, now with the ever-controversial uh, role, of, is there a role for, can we, is it okay to still use nitrous oxide in the setting of a traumatic, acute traumatic brain injury anesthetic? Uh, I don't think people are using nitrous oxide, and I stopped using that. That went the went out the uh, door years ago <clears throat> for for brain injury. Um, those again were the studies done at the same time with succinylcholine, and it was pretty clear that you could increase uh, blood flow and and pressure with nitrous oxide. Um, what reason is there to use it? If if In it could do some harm, just avoid it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, do I mean these are all important points with regards to the specific management of the brain, and you kind of touched a bit uh, when we first started this talk on the hemodynamics. Uh, now, so uh, how about transfusion? There will be frequently those folks come with other organ injuries, orthopedic, thoracic, and you name it. Now, should we have any transfusion triggers uh, in traumatic brain injury with all the, the reports coming out on the harms produced by uh, blood transfusion? Should we have any transfusion triggers here? Very controversial area. So what they talk about in the literature is seven, seven grams per deciliter, which is the, the hemoglobin target. Um, if you're dealing with healthy patients, um, which are the majority of head injured patients, probably can allow them to decrease their hemoglobin. However, when you're dealing with the combination of head injury and multiple trauma, that puts you into a whole other situation. And yes, mortality is increased uh, in associated with blood transfusion, but you don't know is it the inflammatory response from the blood that's given contributing or is it ischemia. So if you really wanted to be scientific about this, to see, and it's something I do talk about in my um, lecture, we really need to monitor the brain for ischemia. We need the monitors developed where we can assess whether or not there's ischemia. And if we could do a PET scan or microdialysis and see a benefit to transfusion, wouldn't that be marvelous? Um, you know, so that would would tell us we're doing the right thing. That, you know, it's sort of like in cardiac now, you have the TEE probe and you can find out, you know, a little more about what what you should be doing to help the patient. We need that kind of diagnostic ability with the brain to know whether or not we should be giving blood because brain ischemia is a problem too. And the brain needs the blood and the glucose to survive. So, um, so, so this is, is there the benefit? Is there benefit from higher hemoglobin levels? I don't think that's been shown. I don't think oh. that's been shown one way or the other. They talk about this number of seven. So the hemoglobin of seven has been sort of the one that... Uh, so how about glucose control here? 
in traumatic mm-hmm. brain traumatic brain injury patients. So if I were to ask which what do you think the intraoperatively are patients hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic? Um, your answer would probably be they're more likely to be hyperglycemic intraoperatively. And that's probably due to this whole stress response. Should we be monitoring the blood glucose, starting an insulin infusion? These are all questions, very controversial. Um, Probably want to keep a little higher than normal because you're worried about the risk of hypoglycemia if you treat with insulin. So what they talk about is, again, 140 to 180 range and not a tight control of of, um, the blood glucose. And that seems to be the going uh, level that you're going to target, somewhere between 140 and 180. But you don't want it higher than that. And you don't want it much lower than that. And again, in the critical care environment, if you could monitor for ischemia, that would be ideal. So once uh, the surgery is done, what do we do with those patients? Stop the pass, send them to recovery room, PACU, or ICU. regular ICU, neuro ICU. I mean, what's what's the, what is the best uh, standard here? Ideally, it's taking an acutely head injured patient into a neuro ICU where they can do some pretty aggressive monitoring and observation to make sure, again, to continue this whole resuscitation and monitoring of cerebral homeostasis and temperature control. So, you know, they've all the studies on hypothermia have not panned out the way we thought they would, but avoiding hyperthermia is so very important in this patient population. So we really need to be very conscious of this concept of cerebral homeostasis. But I think that without proper monitoring, we're really not able to assess any level of cerebral ischemia. Now, taking the patient to the ICU is just one step. What happens to the brain in the next 48 hours is dynamic. So at any point after the surgery, there can be all sorts of things happening to that brain, and it's dynamic, and it's heterogeneous. It could be vasospasm, it could be hyperemia, it could be ischemia. So without an ability to monitor it, you really haven't an idea of how to treat it. So I think... That's where we need to go um, in terms of our research and our our overall management. But just for the practitioner, you definitely have to look at the numbers and follow the electrolytes and and lab values on these patients, and ICP. Excellent. Dr. Bando, thank you so much for taking the time to give us this important information on the topic of traumatic brain injury patients and their perioperative management. And this is going to be very, very useful. And this is your host, Mason McTabby from Massachusetts General Hospital, saying goodbye to you. And uh, I think that's the end of the (laughs) podcast. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Bye-bye. You take care. Bye.